Morning, Glory, and evening, Grace America. It's Hugh Hewitt. Oh, my goodness, the emails, the letters from people who did not get their weekly Hillsdale dialogue on Friday when I was at Disneyland for my annual visit and live broadcast from the happiest place on earth. But never fear, I will not leave you in the lurch. Just a double dose of Hillsdale dialogues this week, today, and on Friday. Today, we're going back to Plutarch, but I remind everyone that every single Hillsdale dialogue is available at hillsdale.edu and at hughforhillsdale.com. And no, we're not going to be talking about what the Pope had to say on his plane. We're not going to be talking about whether or not Egypt is going to collapse into revolution. Those are the sorts of things that we'll cover next hour. In fact, Bill Bennett coming along, as will Jay Matthews be along next hour, as we talk about education reform and the Common Core Standards. But you won't need the Common Core Standards if you're a student at Hillsdale. You already know all of those things. And if you're not a student there, you can at least listen to these amazing Hillsdale Dialogues. Again, the link is over at HughHewitt.com. Today, I have Dr. Larry Arn with me. Dr. Arn, a, a, a good day to you, a different time spot, but I think it will go very well. I, I look forward to it. And if we're trying to get uh, new listeners, and if we're abandoning uh, Representative or former Representative Weiner, let me just say that two of the guys we're going to talk about today were guilty of terrible sex scandals. Oh, there you have it. So it's actually in keeping with it. Now, before we, we dive into the terrible sex scandals, though, we're doing Plutarch for the benefit of the audience. This is the first time since 1894 that there have been three royal heirs alive in the line of the succession. Now, all of English history, which you know so well, is riven by succession crises. You and I are just simply not going to live to see one of those, are we? I don't think so. I, uh, they, they've, you know, they've even changed the law so that it's immaterial now whether the heir, whether the next in line is a girl or a boy. And so that gives, that gives, you know, they've decided that doesn't matter. And, of course, that's a big, that's a big decision. That changes things a lot. But that means that, uh, you know, the, the famous thing from all the really great movies about the English monarchy, about, like, Anne of a Thousand Days, is they have the baby and all the officials are standing around at the bed where the baby is born to see what emerges. And if it's a girl, there's terrible disappointment. They don't even have that anymore. No, and so we are all—we're free of all drama from the royals. And poor Churchill would be spinning in his grave, knowing that there will be no more succession crises, at least for the time being. <laughs> I wish to begin this week by playing for you uh, four minutes of a speech by my friend Archbishop Charles Chaput, which he delivered on July the eighth in Washington D.C. Because we've been talking about biography and the impact of great men on history. Because we're talking about Plutarch. And he talks about one of your favorites in this, and I'd like your reaction to it before we go back to Coriolanus and then forward to Theseus and Romulus. Here is Archbishop Chaput earlier this month. A long time ago in Germany, a man kept a diary, and some of his words are worth sharing today because they're a good place to begin our discussion. The man wrote... Quote, Speak both to the powerful and to every man, whoever he may be, appropriately and without affectation. Use plain language. Receive wealth or prosperity without arrogance and be ready to let it go. Order your life well in every single act. Behave justly to those who are around you. Be vigilant over your thoughts so that nothing should steal into them 
without being well examined. He wrote, again, quote, Every moment, focus steadily on doing the task at hand, with perfect and simple dignity, and with feeling of affection and freedom and justice. Put away hypocrisy. Put away self-love and discontent with your portion in life. We were made for cooperation, and to act against one another is contrary to nature. Accept correction gladly. Teach without anger. Keep yourself simple, good, pure, serious, a friend of justice, kind, affectionate, and strenuous in all proper acts. And finally he wrote, quote, Take care never to feel towards those who are inhuman the way they feel towards other men. End of quote. The dictionary in my home in Philadelphia defines wisdom as the understanding and pursuit of what is true, right, or lasting. If that's so, and I believe it is, the words from the diary we just heard are wisdom. They offer us a map to living a worthy life, a life of interior peace, flowing out of moral character and purpose. They're as valuable today as when they were first written. But what's interesting is this. They were written more than 1,800 years ago. The author probably didn't intend his, to see his work published. He wrote mainly for himself to strengthen his convictions. And many of his thoughts, which we now call the meditations, were written at war, at night, in winter, from the inside of a Roman military tent on the German frontier. In his 19 years as emperor, Marcus Aurelius Antonius had no long period of peace. He spent much of his life away from Rome with his army. He fought one brutal war after another against invaders, and he did it to defend a society that had already lost the values he held dear. Moreover, in the long run, he failed. The barbarians won. Rome rotted out and unraveled. His own son, Commodus, became one of the worst tyrants in history. So why do we remember him? We remember him because nothing is more compelling than a good man in an evil time. Now, Dr. Larry Arn, I thought that was a perfect way to explain why we care about Plutarch and also remarkable to have been delivered in the Basilica of Washington, D.C. in early July 2013. Boy, I t you know, I've never heard that man speak before, Hugh, but you're right about that guy, aren't you? <laughs> yeah. Well, you're a big Aurelian, you're a big emperor fan anyway. Oh, yeah. Well, he, you know, the, the meditations, uh, one tip for everybody, we can actually, from this, this is a very good lead-in, we can explain why we're reading Plutarch and the classic works, but also everybody should get Marcus Aurelius' meditations. This is a good translation by Scott Hicks. There are several, but they are also free all over the place if you read e-books. And take it with you. It's not very big. 
and it's tremendous. Just about any page you open and read in is good for you. It's a tremendous book, and everybody ought to read that book, and I, I have it with me all the time. Well, I, I did not know that, and, and I do think it illumines why we're reading Plutarch, but explain. Well, it, it, uh, if, you, if you heard the tenor of that, um, we're, so we're reading these parallel lives that, that Plutarch wrote, and they're all people who have claims of greatness. There's always a Greek and a Roman. And as you said at the beginning, these lives are lives that are extremely significant in the history of those two countries. And they are, the, the, the parallel lives is written after Greek has failed and Rome is failing. And so there's an effort at revival implicit in this, in, in Plutarch's parallel lives. He is one of the figures in Roman history who tries to save Rome, ultimately unsuccessfully. Mar- Marcus Aurelius is another. And what they're trying to save is the virtue of Rome. And then come to find out the way these lives are written, Plutarch is able to teach us how inside the souls of these men are microcosms of the virtue and the vices of those two cities, Rome and, and Greece, or Athens especially, but also Sparta. So you can see them play out, and, and that, that, uh, uh, that piece read from Marcus Aurelius by the, by the he's a cardinal, isn't he? Archbishop. 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 Yep. Um, he, the, the piece read by him, that's a description of how every one of us would wish to comport himself. And of course, Marcus Aurelius was a late pagan, right? Christianity is abroad in the world, right? But, and so he, 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 there's a kind of merging that goes on in him. And, And all of us can recognize those words and say to ourselves, if we could have that said of us about any particular act, it wouldn't matter the outcome. We would be satisfied with our comportment in that act. Exactly. Exactly. And that is why we read these lives. And when we come back, we're going to finish up with Coriolanus, which we began last week. And then we're going to turn to Theseus and Romulus. I don't know if we're going to get to Lysander and Sulla this week, but... Plutarch is on the table, and this is the hour of the Hillsdale Dialogue. All of these dialogues are available at hillsdale.edu or at hugh4hillsdale.com. And there's a link also at hughhewitt.com. Stay tuned. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. At a different time this week, engaging in the Hillsdale Dialogue with Dr. Larry Arn, which is typically on our Friday and our last broadcast hour of the week. But I'm mixing it up this week just to expose the rest of my radio audience who might listen in the first hour or the second hour uh, on a different day of the week so that they know that what I've been referring to off and on throughout the week is really worth listening to, uh, despite the fact it's not the headlines of the day. It certainly is the headlines of the day. And I want to go back, uh, Dr. Larry Arnes, president of Hillsdale College. And last week we talked about uh, two very interesting men, Coriolanus and Alcibiades, and we didn't finish really with enough of Coriolanus, Caius Martius, is that how you say it? Martius? Caius Martius. Because when we left off, I was quoting Plutarch, by indulging the vehemence of his passions and through an obstinate reluctance to yield or accommodate his humors and sentiments to those of the people around him, he rendered himself incapable of acting and associating with others. In other words, he was a stubborn mule of a man and haughty and arrogant. Why do we 
care about him. Well, that's a now go back to that quote that the that the the, the Archbishop read from uh, Marcus Aurelius. We all want to be remembered for acting that way. These parallel lives show how seldom it is that any person, even among the great, acts that way consistently or through a life. And so, uh, Coriolanus did a very, you know, there, he did two really great things for which he is rightly remembered. One was, darned if he didn't lead us, he first he went by himself, but lead a small contingent of, of troops into the inside the gates which were closed of a hostile city and and fight its army with about two dozen men and get the gates back open and get everybody else back in he was extremely brave and also brilliant commanding troops the second thing is after that they gave him great riches in honor of what he did and he gave them back so this was a man of high and compelling honor. And to be like him, on those occasions, everybody swells up and wants to be like that. And then there are these other occasions, and they are really numerous, and they lead to his tragedy, because he is haughty, and, and that's a misjudgment as well as a moral vice, because it's too important to him to lord it up over people who don't have his qualities of courage and generalship, right? He, he values them too highly, actually. And then second, doing that, he cannot, for the life of him, control his rage. Hmm. And so there's a flaw in the man to go along with these fantastic qualities. And to read the qualities is an appeal to every one of us to develop them in, in himself and to read the flaws is a caution to every one of us that no matter what our excellences are, we've got to be careful because only virtue in the round can lead to a, le- a well-lived life. There is a, uh, a quote in this life by Plutarch. He quotes Antipater in a letter written upon the death of Aristotle. And he says, quote, Aristotle the philosopher, Antipater observes that among Aristotle's other gifts, he had that of persuasiveness. And the absence of this in the character of Coriolanus made all of his great actions and noble qualities unacceptable to those whom they benefited. Pride and self-will, the consort, as Plato calls it, of solitude, made him insufferable. And he goes on to contrast him with Alcibiades, who was sweet, quote, his very errors at time being accompanied by something of grace and felicity, so that in spite of great and frequent hurt that he had done to Athens, he was repeatedly appointed to the office and command of the city. And I thought of Bill Clinton, Larry yeah. Arn. <laughs> yeah, without the martial virtue. Without the martial <laughs> virtue. But just no matter what he does, he's so winsome that he gets back in our good graces. Yeah, that's right. He's a, he's a charming rogue. And see, now, now that's a very good way to think about this book. And I, I appeal to people. Hugh, Hugh Hewitt is so often wrong, but in this case, he's very right. <laughs> Everyone should read Plutarch. It's really great. And you will. And and see, the reason you you read it is it is an examination of human characters, and you can compare them to the ones you see. What is it about Bill Clinton, right? Now, imagine, however. Bill Clinton, who's a great conqueror, 
And, you know, they used to say of Clinton, he's so ambitious, you know, and his wife is now going to be president after him, they say, and he's going to be the head of the U.N. or he's going to get on the Supreme Court. He'll never stop, right? Right. Well, he, you know, maybe that's true. Maybe it's not true. Alcibiades was setting things up so that he could conquer the whole world and use his own city to do it. And if he couldn't get it done with that, he would use his own city's prime enemies, either one of them or both of them, both of whom he joined. Yeah. So this is like Bill Clinton more so, yeah. and, and with enormous abilities added. And that's why, you know, it's how long is it? It's, it's uh, 2,400 years, 2,500 years since Alcibiades lived, and we read about him. I also want to, from the, the life of Coriolanus, just read something about Rome, which I think is so appropriate to us. All at Rome were in great disorder. They were utterly adverse from fighting and spent their whole time in cabals and disputes and reproaches against each other until news was brought that the enemy had laid close siege. These tidings produced a change as universal as it was extraordinary in the thoughts and inclinations of the people, but it yet occasioned a stranger revulsion of feelings among the patricians. In other words, when, when doom threatens, countries tend to get their acts together when it comes to leadership. Yeah, and that's why, you know, we, I mean, you know, why did Britain turn to Winston Churchill in September of 1940? What he had done, he had a he had a tremendous war reputation because he was a very fine soldier, very highly decorated, very successful. But what they knew about him was he was firm. He, he just you couldn't break the guy, and all those qualities that made you think of him, he was stubborn as a mule, and nobody could work with him. They would think that, and he would do these brilliant, imaginative things that upset everything and came out of nowhere, right? Now the situation is different. Hey, let's get that guy, <laughs> you know? And they don't think that anymore about Stanley Baldwin, who no. is essentially a calming influence. Right? But I, I do have to say, though, you, you for Larry Arn to say September of 1940 as opposed to May of 1940, I can't let that pass. Yeah, I, mean, I got my year wrong. You got your, your month wrong. And, and uh, <laughs> the war started, because here's what happened in, this, in, in October of 1938. And see, now let's go back and explain why this matters. In these lives of these people, all of them or almost all of them have occasions when they are not at their best because their characters are not formed to be good in all circumstances. That's extremely rare. You know, George Washington, right? Winston Churchill, I think. Well, hold, hold that. We're going to go to the break. Then we come back to those occasions when they are not at their best. Dr. Larry Arn is my guest. Plutarch is our subject. This is the Hillsdale Dialogue in a different hour this week. You can read them all or listen to them all at hughforhillsdale.com or at hillsdale.edu. Stay tuned. Thirty-four minutes after the hour, America, to Hewitt with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, on Plutarch and on why sometimes the greatest people have their bad periods and their off days, and why we have to study those as well as their glories. 
um, yeah, what I was saying was, and see, I, 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 for some reason, this seems an important part because you, you began with a beautiful quotation from the Marcus Aurelius and the Archbishop. People should remember what their lives consist in. Life is a series of examinations. Circumstances are presented to one, and one must figure that out how to act rightly, and in, especially when the circumstances are difficult. And different sets of circumstances challenge different things in us. The, all the moral and the intellectual virtues are solicited by events. And you can see these guys falling down. And I was just telling a quick Churchill story. In 1938, uh, in the summer of 1938, Neville Chamberlain made his deal with Adolf Hitler about Czechoslovakia and waived the paper, this piece in our time. And this was concluded on October 4th or 5th, 1938, I think. And Chamberlain was at the peak of his power. And Churchill in one of the very greatest speeches he gave on October the 5th, 1938, in the House of Commons, took that on in the debate over the Munich Accords. And it's beautiful how it ends. It's tremendous, he says. And, and see, remember about Churchill. You just said about Coriolanus, he was not persuasive. Right. More than Washington. More than, you know... Churchill, Hamilton, even that, Churchill could write and he could speak. And it was brilliant when he stood up, always, right? He had an enormous reputation. So he stands up and he gets to the end. And it's like a scene in Macbeth. He says, this is first, but the first tape, taste, foretaste, the first sip of a cup that will be proffered to us again and again. We will drink from this cup and learn what is coming upon us, he says. Hmm. And it ends with, until the dread judgment is, 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 is uh, levied, thou art weighed in the balance and found wanting. That's what he says to Chamberlain at the peak of Chamberlain's popularity. Right, that is bold. There is no trimming, and, and it was so powerful that it left the house in silence. Right, and it interrupted the celebration. Now, in March of 39, so October, November, December, January, February, March, six months later, Hitler does what he promised not to do. He takes the rest of Czechoslovakia. And it, so it lasted six months, right? It's, yeah. You know, it's been, how long has it been since the last election, right? Or since the inauguration of Obama the second time? Yeah. This, time's gone, right, already. Yep. So in six months, all of a sudden, Events have vindicated this speech, which everybody knew about, right? And so all over London appeared from nowhere signs on a white background, black letters, huge, what price Churchill, question mark, hmm. billboards, right? So there wasn't any choice but to ask him into the government in September 39. And then in May, as you rightly say, 1940, the Chamberlain government fell, and by a whisker, Churchill was chosen over another man to become the prime minister, and then everything changed. Now, who put those signs? Was it Beaverbrook arranged for those signs? Do we it know? No. We don't know. Huh? We don't know. I, I, I find that whoever put those signs up deserves a footnote somewhere along the way. Yeah, I, I, and <laughs> took trouble not to get it, whoever did it. Yeah, that's interesting. That's yeah. very interesting. All right, now we must turn to 
mythical beings, Theseus and Romulus. That's who we're doing this week. We have a minute here, and then we have a couple of segments thereafter. And, and so the first question in a minute, Larry, why study mythical beings? I know myths are stories intended to be believed, but why study them? Well, two of the, two of the greatest civilization cities ever founded have mythical stories about their founders. That tells you something about the cities. As well as, by the way, offering another kind of examination of human character in operation amidst events. Because we've got as as solid, rock solid characters as Caesar, whose life is, you know, etched in detail that anyone could possibly want from ancient times, and yet Plutarch treats them as equally worthy of study. Yeah, well, that's been, you know, that's, if you want to, because just remember, in, in uh, we, have to, we have to sort of get a political education to follow all this. So I'll tell you this after the break. All right, we'll be right back. Dr. Larry Arn is my guest. The Hillsdale Dialogues at a different time this week. All of them are available from January's first one on the Iliad through to the present. Uh, all at hughforhillsdale.com or hillsdale.edu. And there's a link at hughhewitt.com. Forty-four minutes after the Our America Two Hugh at a different time this week for the Hillsdale Dialogue with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College. All of these weekly conversations about one of the great works of Western literature are available at HughForHillsdale.com or Hillsdale.edu. You will also find at Hillsdale.edu great courses in the Constitution on the progressive movement on Western civilization. They are open to the public. They are free. You can also sign up for the Hillsdale monthly newsletter, most recently including the commencement address of one Senator Ted Cruz, which you can have for free at Hillsdale.edu. You really ought to sign up for these. So, Dr. Arn, you were saying we need a political education before we proceed to, to Theseus and Romulus. Of what sort? Well, it, it works this way. If you want to understand your country, one of the questions you have to ask is, what kind of person does it produce? Because the ultimate aim of politics is certain forms of human character, certain ways of living. And this correspondence between the city and man, which is one of the great classical themes, is, is close because politics arises naturally from the signal attributes of human nature. We are rational creatures, which makes us able to talk to each other, gives us our moral concerns, and draws us together into politics. That's the classical argument. So much so that in Plato's Republic, uh, young men challenge Socrates to show them that justice is good for its own sake, and Socrates replies, okay, but we can see the point better if we write it larger. Let's describe the just city. That's why it's called Republic, the public things, you see. So when you're reading about these two mythical founders, this tells you something about the Athenians, which also tells you something about Themistocles, a real guy, and Pericles, a real guy. They are ruling and working amidst the people who value greatly this story about Theseus. And Theseus and Ryman, they're both killers. This is, uh, they're both not to be trusted, and they are both very brutal people. These are not, these are not happy talk, cherry tree cutting down myth. These are founding myths full of, of rape and pillaging and uh, slaying of beasts and double crosses. 
Yeah, and uh, and that's what's really good about them, I guess. But, <laughs> but it, but no, both of them. See, they're both like like many of these characters. There's a few of these characters. In fact, when we get ready to summarize all these years we're going to spend in Plutarch, because you like it so much, um, we should we should go down and try to rank them. Who are the ones that shine the brightest and most consistently? Right. Well. Like the ones who don't shine consistently, both Romulus and Theseus do magnificent things, tremendous things, very worthy things, things that you would be proud if one of your children did, extremely proud, right? You'd think it a signal fact in their lives and yours. They did many things like that. Like, for example, Romulus, it's attributed to him, the Roman genius that made the expansion of Rome possible. Yes. When they, when they took a people, when they conquered a people, they made them equals. They invited them in. And what they had to invite them into was strong enough to remain a whole with an integrity, although it was growing. And so Rome... And that started with Romulus. Yeah, when he beat, after he killed his brother. When he beat people, he invited them to be citizens, quote, and indeed there was nothing did more to advance the greatness of Rome that, that she did always unite and incorporate those whom she conquered into herself. Why was Rome greater than Persia? The answer is, in Persia, everyone was equal, but also in some sense uh, uh, equal as a slave to one man, the emperor. And in Rome, equal citizens is what people were. And that gave them a dignity. And the Roman Republic was a thriving and growing thing such as had never been seen because it showed a way to do that. And that fact is part of the Romulus myth that all Romans look to. You know, because Romulus is the name, that Rome is the namesake of Romulus. There is also in the Theseus story the first big friendship, Theseus and Pirithous, but also this, which is not normally the case. His tomb is a sanctuary and a refuge for slaves, and all those of mean condition that fly from the persecution of men in power, in memory that Theseus, while he lived, was an assister and protector of the distressed, and never refused the petitions of the afflicted that fled to him. A good bit of advice for rulers of all ages. Yeah, yeah, that's right, and and worth comparing, by the way, because in 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 Theseus, the myth story, Theseus is more populist than Rom, Romulus. He's more passionate. He's a serial rapist. Yes, he is. <laughs> uh, he's he's more wily. You know, the the Athenians love Odysseus. He's clever. He can talk, right? And and. Uh, Theseus does great acts of heroism, but sometimes he does it by trick. He kills this monster uh, that that you know, and he does it with thread, you know, finding his way out of the labyrinth. And it's, he's a very tricky, wily guy, as well as being shrewd and heroic. And so there's qualities that the Athenians value, qualities that you can hear echo in Pericles' funeral oration. He also, I, 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 your comment, he, he punished evil men with the same violence that they had inflicted upon others. Yeah, justice. <laughs> Proportional, Old Testament, really. That's it. That's it. Yeah, justice is a kind of equality. It makes things 
puts things back into balance. When we come back, a final three-minute segment in the Hillsdale Hour. I hope we have tempted you to go back to the beginning, to the Iliad and the Odyssey, which was all the way back in January of this year, and proceed through them all. They are all listed. All of them can be listened to at hillsdale.edu or hughforhillsdale.com. And they are all also in uh, typed form. They're all uh, prepared and over at the transcripts page at hughhewitt.com if you want to read through these. And, and I can assure you that Dr. Arn's colleagues are much more interesting than Dr. Arn is. And so you can go and read those as well, Dr. West and the others, uh, as we went through Plato and Aristotle and the rest. And we will proceed through Plutarch for a couple more weeks. So don't take a minute during the break. Head on over there and I'll be back to conclude because marriage is a key theme of both Theseus and Romulus's story, and it would not be—it uh, wouldn't be right if we went through a week of uh, of news about marriage without commenting on this. When I return with Dr. Larry Arn of Hillsdale College, stay tuned. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt, the Hillsdale Dialogue Hour, concluding with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College. Dr. Arn, on this the week on Tuesday, a federal district court in Ohio operating off of the Supreme Court decisions of last month, struck down the Ohio laws limiting marriage to one man and one woman, saying it was unconstitutional given Justice Kennedy's opinion in Windsor. And I found it interesting as I read Theseus and Romulus to prepare for this week, that marriage is a key theme of both of these books, and his high praise for Romulus is Plutarch's, to the reverence and love and constancy he established in matrimony many can witness, and that it was important to the state that he did so. Yeah, they, you know, and the, the story is, and see, you have to remember about the Romans. The Romans had a principle of self-restraint in them. They were very pious and very devoted to virtue. And it is the loss of that in the great men and in the citizens that leads to the decline of both Greece and Rome. And the way you treat your women is crucial. It's a barometer of the state of your soul. And and the Romans didn't have any women, and so they went and stole the Sabine women. But the story has a happy ending, because then later the Romans are at war with the last group of the Sabines, and their women, now long become Roman women, rush out onto the battlefield and stop the battle and said, we don't want to lose either of our homes, let us unite. And so that brings together, and see, it's a simple necessity that for some reason we can't seem to understand in these court cases that human beings have to propagate for each generation to be successful. That means the young need the middle-aged and the old need the middle-aged. And that work of childbearing is a basic work of human life, and it takes place in the family, and that's not a subject under our discretion. Yeah, but Judge Walker in the district court case, in the Prop 8 case, said we can't read Plutarch. He can't be admitted to the courtroom. We can't read any of these old dead guys or old dead ladies because they can't be admitted to the courtroom to testify. Because they're dead. Because they're dead. Yeah, that's it. And that's, you know, that's, <laughs> by the way, read the stories of the diseases that came in to these two societies as they're discussed in Plutarch. And those diseases are to be repelled, right? And, and I think there's a moral lesson for us in that. Dr. Larry Arn of Hillsdale College next week to Sula and Lysander. One of my favorite guys, Sula. Absolutely. One of, his tomb says, no friend has ever done me a favor nor enemy an injury that I have not repaid in full. Not particularly Christian, is it? Well, he's uh, 
Sula is not the best fellow we're going to read about. <laughs> <laughs> but effective. Very, very effective. Very effective. <laughs> Dr. Larry Ard, thank you. Hillsdale.edu, America. Go and get all of these or go to Hugh for Hillsdale.com or the button is linked over at HughHewitt.com. Stay tuned.